as an industry, we really try to focus on the product itself and really tap the benefits of the product and not necessarily what the client was trying to accomplish in the portfolio. As we think about democratization 2.0, I think we have an opportunity, especially in private markets, to think more about and start with what the client's trying to accomplish and then work our way backwards. Does the client really need this? Does it actually work for helping the client achieve these different objectives? Welcome to the Investor Hour podcast. I have the pleasure today to speak to Aaron Fieldbeck, Managing Director at Kaya and Head of Unify by Kaya. He's a practitioner in private wealth management and his work is regularly published in financial media, academic press, around many topics linked to alternatives. Aaron, welcome. Great to have you here. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, we've spoken to people from the Kai before. We've spoken to Bill Kelly earlier, but I think it's good to remind our audience what is the Kaya, um, you know, the, the, the role of the um, organization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Kaya, uh, it's C-A-I-A, so stands for the uh, Chartered Alternative Investment Analyst. Um, and we're a professional association, professional body. So we are focused on providing education, raising ethical standards in the industry, and we have a particular focus on, on alternatives. Um, and I can get into kind of where we focus in terms of our educational programs, but anyone who is allocating to alternatives, uh, GPs, LPs, regulators, academics, and so on that are in the alternative space is really where we're focused. We have 13,000 members globally. So uh, three offices, one here in the Americas, one in uh, Geneva, Switzerland, and the other in Hong Kong. So very much a global presence and a global membership body um, across those 13,000 members. And we're just over 20 years old. So we, uh, we started in the early 2000s, really with the birth of uh, hedge funds as, uh, as an industry, and uh, certainly over time, and I know we'll talk about private debt, that uh, umbrella of what constitutes alternative investments um, has certainly diversified into um, many different sub-industries under that broader umbrella. Wonderful. And I have to say as well to the audience that I have the Kaya as well. I didn't mention it, although I've said it in other episodes, but there you go. I'm a proud member and I've interviewed quite a few Kaya members. Not that I have a bias, but feel back my previous guest with whom we talked about real estate also is part of the Kaya. And uh, the association is changing. There's this uh, new initiative called Unify, which I think is very interesting. And uh, I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and a lot of, of what we've been focusing on over the past couple of years is just this whole move of uh, democratizing access to alternatives. And um, particularly when you look here in the United States, the trends are starting a little bit more globally. Uh, the move from more institutions allocating to alternatives, you know, institutions are still allocating a big portion of of their portfolios to things like private equity, real estate, hedge funds, and so on. But there's been a pretty concerted move on the GP side and the asset management side to try to open up access to a lot of these strategies to uh, the ultra high net worth individual. And so, you know, you look at the past 10 years on the other side of the equation, we had record low interest rates, high public market valuations, 
And so people were looking at their portfolios and saying, I need something a little bit different. I need better diversified access to a lot of these different strategies. And so you have this supply and demand dynamic that really came together in the late 2010s and new products coming to market that allow individual investors to access what a lot of institutions have already allocated towards. So at Kaya, the designation that we offer and we've offered for over 20 years is really a deep dive into a lot of these strategies. It's really focused on the allocator, the CIO, the GP who's in the weeds, who's doing a lot of the analysis. It's a very technical designation, as you know, uh, having gone through it, you know, very analytical and a very heavy hammer in terms of the number of hours to, to go through that program. But there's a lot of new entrants into this market, whether it's a financial advisor or it's uh, distribution uh, staff who are now looking at new product for the first time that really need just more of an understanding of how these things work at a more conceptual level. They're not going to be an analyst. They're not going to be a CIO, but they do need to know enough to be dangerous, understand the jargon and understand how these different strategies work. So at Kaya, we launched this platform called Unify by Kaya, uh, which is a learning platform. And the vision for this platform is to develop a series of programs that allow people that, you know, depending on where you are in your learning journey, where you sit in the industry and your role at an organization, uh, you can kind of pick and choose uh, different educational programs that may not be as heavy or as technical or analytical as a high stakes credential like a, a Kaya or a CFA or a CFP. So uh, we've got a couple of programs on this platform, private debt, which I know we'll talk about in a little bit is one of them. Uh, we also have our fundamentals of alternative investments uh, certificate program, which is a 20 hour online video based uh, certificate program uh, that really gives you kind of an overview of the total alternatives landscapes. So you're getting the 101s of hedge funds, private equity, real estate, and so on, that just get you kind of that foundational level of our industry. Where we're launching new programs are these micro-credentials. So private debt is one of them. We have one on digital assets coming out in the uh, next month and a half. But these are deeper dives. So fundamentals may provide you kind of that overview, but if you're really focused on a particular industry like private debt or any particular asset class, uh, we'll be stacking this library with a bunch of micro-credentials that are much shorter, four to five hours in length, that allow you to go a little bit deeper into that particular that particular industry. I've started this private debt, which is really a great course. There's so much to learn. I very much appreciate that kind of a lifelong learning in terms of the kind. I mean, I took my exam 10 years ago, so it's still somehow there. But having a refresh and also an update, et cetera, is so important. Is that also part of the vision? Yeah. So one of the things that we did pretty consciously as we were launching private debt and as we think about future launches is, well, you know, to your point, you may not be in wealth uh, necessarily or within kind of this democratization, this wave that's, that's occurring. But we have 13,000 members that, to your point, have taken the CHI designation at various points in their career. You know, I got mine seven years ago. So, you know, it's been a long time and the curriculum has certainly changed since then. So what we wanted to do is offer these micro-credentials up to our membership as part of, uh, you know, being a member of the association. And you can use this as a continuing education opportunity, if, if you will, if you're sitting in an advisor seat or a wholesaler seat. Um, it's a nice kind of benefit as a member to kind of keep yourself updated. You know, private debt 11 years ago was a very different industry than it is 
uh, today. So, um, you know, hopefully there's a added benefit of having members go through it and, you know, see what we're talking about on the Unify platform. Why was that the starting um, course? Is that because you see particular demand in terms of private debt or was there another reason? It's a really good question. And, and as we were kind of building this platform and thinking through the plan of uh, the programs that we would launch, there's a lot of things on our list. I mean, we'd love to put <laughs> five different programs, you know, out uh, all at once. Um, but when we looked at what the industry was really paying attention to, where a lot of the growth had been historically and, and really where a lot of the, um, the adoption and maybe confusion uh, was occurring was in this private debt industry. So when you look at the past 10 years or so, just over the 2010s, and all the different alternative strategies that are available to individuals and institutions, private debt was the fastest growing alternative investment strategy in terms of just growth and assets under management. So, you know, you look back at the global financial crisis, this industry was, you know, sub half a trillion in assets under management. And in about 10 years, we saw that growth go from that kind of small number to over 1.5 trillion in assets under management. So tripling in just about a decade. And the makeup of that industry has evolved quite substantially as well. So if you look 20 years ago, it was really distressed debt, mezzanine uh, debt as well, were kind of the two primary uh, strategies that were pursued in private debt. And it's much more diverse now. We've got direct lending, which really grew out of the global financial crisis, you know, venture debt, which has uh, grown, especially in the past four or five years as the venture market has really taken off. You know, it's still small, but growing. Uh, the growth of asset-based lending, again, coming out of the global financial crisis has grown quite substantially. So when you talk about private debt, that umbrella is massive. There's a lot of different sub-strategies underlying it. So all of those kind of factors played into our decision for, you know, let's take a look at this program. Of course, at the time, interest rates were at rock bottom, so people were looking for income. So that's just an added uh, rationale for, okay, everyone's kind of paying attention to this stuff. Do they truly understand it? And is this something that really makes sense for their portfolio? So maybe those are some of the factors that really played into you know, our decision to launch this one first. Right. And now there's more talk as uh, in particular as banks typically fail on a Friday. Well, there's more opportunities or, or a bigger gap to, to fill in. And we're going to talk about it later. But before we even go into that, I also wanted to mention as a private investor as well, that sometimes has bonds, how useful this has been to me, the private debt course, because it talks about so many technical aspects, whether it's secured or not, the land, the seniority, blah, blah, blah. And I have a bond that for my sins has gone bankrupt. And what I realized with other investors, so we've regrouped and talked about it, and we were all kind of hoping somehow there must be a process. <laughs> that the FCA in England or something will hold us by the hand. But I realized when normal bond becomes bankrupt or infrastructure, it becomes in this realm of uh, distressed debt or private debt. The technical aspects are actually critical. Even in a 60-40 portfolio, if you have 60% bonds, you, you might as well uh, understand what can happen. And maybe just if I could just pick up on that sure. a little bit. And you probably saw this throughout when, we, when you're going through the, the program itself we're trying to demystify private debt a little bit. I mean, there are some complexities and there's illiquidity and, and unique characteristics of, of the asset class and these strategies, but 
at the end of the day, debt is debt, uh, whether it's public or private. And a lot of the, the factors and the fundamental drivers of return are very similar. You have to pay attention to things like capital structure, um, the interest rates, um, whether it's floating or fixed, credit spread, you know, are a big driver of, of your long-term returns. And then, you know, covenants are a big piece of this as well, again, public or private. So, you know, our starting point for the program is, hey, like this is a new industry and there's been a lot of growth, but you still have to start and go back to basics with some of these concepts that are really important when both analyzing loans directly or um, looking at a manager who's investing in it. So I think your point is spot on, you know, these, whether you're a public or, or a private fixed income investor, there are some similarities in that approach. Yes, what has struck me as let's say, a general principle, because we won't be able to go through the details, is how technical this is, right? They're all debts, but they all have different characteristics, things you should learn. And maybe that's kind of uh, enough to know the dangers of, of being a tourist in that field. Yeah, there's so many more decision points in fixed income. Um, you know, equities are usually what takes a lot of the attention in the media just because there's a lot of volatility and I'm uh, on the public side. And then, of course, private equity has grown quite substantially in assets, too. You know, I think last mark I saw was close to 10 trillion in assets, so 10 times the size of uh, the debt, the private debt market. But fixed income is a bigger market than equities in terms of just the paper that's out there. There's a lot of countries that still rely exclusively on debt to finance their operations. But even as you're structuring a loan, there's more factors to consider. Where do you sit on that capital structure? How long is the actual loan itself? Uh, you know, credit quality. Uh, so you're not just buying a bond, like you might just buy an equity, uh, which is equity, you know, I own equity, you own equity, it's the same thing, especially in public markets. Fixed income has so many different other decision points that go into it. If we look at the financial advisor point of view, what are they, are their choices mainly to go via funds? Is that the, the approach? Is there sometimes a direct approach to private debt? Or to, what do I say, direct yeah. approach to individual instruments? Yeah, I would say, you know, if you're an advisor, you're a wealth manager, most of the time you'd be accessing the strategy through a fund and looking at, you know, a manager who's going to sub-advise. I mean, I guess if you get into the ultra, ultra high net worth or the family office space, you might do some direct investments, direct loan, but you need size and scale a lot of the times to do that. So accessing this through drawdown funds or, you know, what we've seen more recently is this proliferation of semi-liquid structures, evergreen structures, interval funds uh, here in the U.S. You know, in the U.S. we have BDCs as well. So there's a lot of different flavors to kind of act this asset class, but uh, mostly through funds. You, you know, if you're a typical private wealth manager, you're not going to be doing a ton of direct lending. Mm -hmm. As we said, you know, we can only highlight the complexity. There's a couple of things that just struck me. And one, for example, is venture debt. And it seems to me like almost a contradiction in itself, because one of the stats you show in the course that uh, 75, something like that, 75% startups would fail. And therefore, how does that fit with debt? Because if I've got limited upside, which is typically the case of debt, a potential to, uh, you know, 75% or something like that to, to go to zero, this doesn't seem like something that makes in a sense. I, I've learned now that there's a reason behind it, but it's kind of a paradox that I'd love you to talk a bit about. 
Yeah, well, I think you're you're spot on. You know, venture debt, the venture market in general is, yeah, as we as we all know, very risky. Uh, there's a high degree of failure, especially on the equity side. Venture debt, um, again, is small but growing, uh, you know, pretty substantially in terms of just growth and assets under management. What you've historically seen in the venture debt market is the loans come after a couple rounds of equity financing. So there is a bit of an established, you know, precedent for financing. So, and, and it tends to be sponsored, uh, sponsored lending in the venture debt market. That's the vast majority. So you've already gone through, you know, your uh, initial C, you know, maybe A, B series uh, financing on the equity side. And now you need, a, you know, something to get you over the hump, you know, in terms of financing growth opportunities and so on. So. It doesn't remove the risk, to your point. There is still that risk of failure because it is relatively early stage. But what we've seen, and I don't have the stats in front of me, but you know, defaults for venture loans um, are pretty contained. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, I think depending on the environment, sub 10%, maybe in a, in a good environment, sub five. So you, know, you tend to have the ones going for loans, at least historically, the defaults have been relatively low. But it is risky, and uh, you know the returns of the returns of venture debt are not as high as venture uh, venture equity. But interest rates could be you know low teens up to uh, even low twenties, depending on you know the the structure of the deal and the market environment. So there is there is a return for the risk that you take on, but you are operating in the early stage companies uh, to your point. So there is that fundamental risk. Yeah, that's what I also find so interesting as an asset class is that you have this gap, let's say, you know, if I take a broad picture, what I would call the fixed income side, even the high yield things, it would be still single digits. Whereas you have instruments now in private debt allowed to go into double digits, so a different risk profile. And um, another one which I thought is quite striking is this distressed debt. And I mm-hmm. think I remember from my Kaya course that it has some particular characteristic that makes it very, I don't know if countercyclical is the right word, but this is something that where opportunities are in bad time. And therefore, it's such an interesting concept for, well, for investors and for the portfolio as a whole, right? Yeah, and you're right. It is very countercyclical. The opportunity to invest in distressed debt is lumpy. You know, you have these drawdown periods economically or or even within a particular industry. You know, you can have a good broader economic environment. But, you know, for example, um, in like 2015, we had the big oil plunge. And so energy was kind of a place for distressed debt investors, even though, you know, other markets were doing okay. So there is kind of a an opportunistic element to uh, this, the distressed debt market. And distressed debt kind of straddles both public and private markets. So there are some managers that will loan directly to a distressed company. They're privately originating these loans to help them through a particular um, environment. And then you've got the public markets where distressed debt managers are coming in and buying outstanding, you know, already broadly syndicated particular bonds in that environment. The reason why we included in this program is because even though Many of these managers are operating in public markets, and there are some in private, but you know, public markets. When they buy these loans and you're a distressed company, there's a high degree of illiquidity. So even though it may be a publicly traded bond, historically, if you're buying these loans, you may be buying a substantial portion of it. 
and it may not be as easy for you to offload those loans to another buyer. And so the liquidity profile becomes much more illiquid than liquid. Yeah, this is also what fascinates me about this whole private debt. If we, if we zoom in just on Deskjob's debt, there's different things you can do. You can trade it. You can have an activist uh, approach, right? Uh, and so on and so forth. And how much specialized this industry and sub-industry is. And therefore, from the end investor point of view, being able to understand the basic concept is such a differentiating factor. Yeah, I, I would agree. And especially, you know, when you take a step back and look at alternatives broadly, and I think private debt's no exception, um, you know, the dispersion of outcomes is very wide relative to traditional. Some of that is due to manager skill and you know, their ability to deliver. But another piece of that is, uh, you know, the style that's being pursued. So like, you know, private equity, uh, where you've got different stages of the company's life, you've got different sector focuses, that all leads to dispersion private debt is the same in terms of either the strategy or the place in the capital structure or you're you know in the case of distressed debt there's multiple approaches that you can take you've got more tradable uh, strategies where you're not taking an active role you've got these activist investors that are coming in buying up the debt and hoping to convert into equity uh, later on when the company turns around um, so those different styles from an end investor perspective are just important to understand because Buying one distressed debt fund versus another, you're probably not going to get the same outcome depending on some of those factors. Before we go into the portfolio or where it fits in the portfolio, I'm just going to show you this article, which is very recent from BFT. And perhaps the image in itself is, uh, is enough. Maybe you want to comment on that uh, <laughs> while, you, while you take it all in. I just want to mention a couple of things in the article. Basically, it's an article about Blackstone, and they say they're very bullish, and they say the fact that the banks are retreating because the regional banks are dropping gives them um, a bigger opportunity. But Robin Wigglesworth has a lot of caveats, right? That it's crowded, that there's been too much activity, that you know a recession might wipe out the whole thing. If I was looking at the picture, I'd say, okay, is yeah. private credit the, the cool <laughs> kid in this uh, in today's Yeah, I think certainly it is the cool kid in terms of interest from investors. But let me just say, like, I'd love to see a movie with all four of these actors uh, in it. So maybe that goes to the point of uh, diversification in a portfolio. But uh, you know, <laughs> I, back back to our our earlier comment on. You know, you've got private credit right there next to liquid fixed income. They're more similar than different um, in a lot of lot of ways. So I think it just goes to show, you know, this isn't some reinvention of the wheel. It's it's just a different structure, uh, has more complexity, um, and so on. But uh, maybe I'll go back to my initial comment. You know, this is a diversified portfolio in some way. So yeah, uh, yeah, I like. The, you know, yeah, I like I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I can't remember the movie, but um. Okay, great. And and what do you think about, could it be overhyped? You know, there is a, a trend that I think is supportive of, of these strategies. You know, global financial crisis really kickstarted direct lending and, and you don't really see the banks coming back in uh, to make those loans. We were just alluding and, and maybe, uh, who knows, next week there might be another bank that fails. We've had a couple of really big uh, headline uh, bank failures with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature and uh, First Republic and so on, where, you know, venture debt has an opportunity here. There's likely going to be some form of regulation and consolidation. The policymakers react to some of this that's occurred. So I think there is a, a supportive environment 
for a lot of these strategies in the private debt space. That being said, there's a couple of risks that are are um, in this place as well. I mean, one, uh, a year ago, interest rates were at zero. Um, and now, you know, uh, SOFR has, uh, has, you know, jumped up. Uh, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but, you know, maybe close to 5%. Yep. So your base rate has, has definitely gone up uh, quite substantially. And so that spread that's on top of that, you know, your interest rates from a pure headline perspective are very attractive. You're looking at kind of low uh, double digits and maybe even mid uh, double digits, depending on the strategy being pursued. Um, but the bottom line is these companies need to pay those interest rates. And so, um, you know, that's where you get into capital structure placement, credit quality, and, you know, can these companies actually handle making those um, interest payments and, and servicing that debt? Or is this something that could lead to some kind of a, a drawdown? Um, you know, I think the other the other risk here is just because there's so many players that have moved into the market, the importance of manager selection and due diligence um, is even more important. You don't just have a few players that are, you know, really specializing in this. Private equity firms are moving into the space. You've got a lot of newcomers, the number of funds that are are being launched. There's a lot that's coming. And so, you know, I think coming back to understanding the structure of the loans, but also the way the manager is implementing um, these loans in their portfolio, I think is very important. This isn't a panacea by any means. I have to say, uh, one of my previous guests, Edward Chancellor, wrote a book about the interest rates and how, well, typically zero interest rate as they've been is an anomaly and that typically leads to bad investment decisions. Um, and the feedback, um, we discussed uh, very much in detail the, well, the issues with Blackstone REIT and its um, potential, uh, you know, overvalued liquidity, etc. There's nothing like that in private debt. While we see this opportunity, how important it is to be empowered in order to navigate it at every level, right? You know, the, the rise of the semi-liquid funds uh, in most of these asset classes is continuing. So you have the non-traded REITs um, in private credit. You've got a lot of interval funds that are investing in this stuff. And a lot of these vehicles, um, you know, are, are touting the benefits of periodic liquidity and your ability to rebalance and, and all of those kind of things. But at the end of the day, you're investing in a very illiquid asset. And a lot of these vehicles um, have the ability to throw up protections or gates for the investor. And so I think it's just important, good or bad, to just understand how these vehicles work and be educated uh, before, before going in. Because if you're going into a semi-liquid fund and expecting that as soon as you want to sell out, um, that you can, that may not always be the case, especially when you most need it uh, or when... Uh, there's a distressed period of investing. I mean, most of the time when you want liquidity, it's when everyone else wants liquidity. And a lot of these vehicles will throw up, or just either by design or on a discretionary basis, they'll throw up those gates um, and kind of adhere to uh, the documents of the fund. Talking about education, it fills up the gap between the marketing and the small print, because obviously all those have small print, and if you read them, uh, everything is explained, right? And the marketing is also regulated, but um, it's very easy for investors to focus on, well, when we say partial liquidity, normally I can exit, but if you, if you really read into it, 
where it's more complicated. And I used to work in financial marketing. I realized you're always pushing a little bit the boundaries on the marketing side. It's easy to lose track, I guess, of the fundamentals. But if someone that, for example, followed a course like this, well, you're much more grounded. Yeah, I, I would agree. We've still got the picture up here. Um, but, you know, I think not getting distracted by the cool kid uh, on the block and really understanding what are you getting yourself into is important because you're right. I mean, a lot of these, especially on the more regulated funds or the semi-liquid funds uh, that are there, you know, it's uh, these are explained in those documents. And so making sure that you understand that gates can be thrown up. Too many people try to redeem their shares, I think, is an important thing to understand before you go in and not be surprised uh, when it does occur. So what I would like to discuss now a little bit with you is how does how do we consider this in terms of uh, portfolio construction? And can you give mm -hmm. us some general principles of adding private debt into a, let's say, a normal portfolio? There's a couple of layers to the process. I mean, one, you've got to start with the client and you've got to start with what the client is trying to accomplish in their portfolio. So whether or not that's generating um, attractive income, uh, there's a total return objective, um, there's a long time horizon versus a short time horizon. All of those qualitative factors and the client experience um, is a really, really important uh, driver um, for your decision process. That would be step one. You know, I think the second layer is um, your tolerance and your ability to take on illiquidity from a structural perspective. So back to kind of our, our early dis earlier discussion on um, fund structure and semi-liquid versus fully illiquid. Um, you know, one, do regulations allow your client to get into maybe the more illiquid fund structures or do they have to stay with the semi-liquid or is there a behavioral reason why uh, they want to be semi-liquid versus fully illiquid? So I think teasing that out um, and having that conversation with a client is is an important thing because that really kind of defines your universe of what you can actually access. So start with the goals, then get into the structure. Um, you know, from there, you get into more of the portfolio construction and, and the asset allocation uh, decisions, which, you know, as I mentioned before, um, private debt is such a diverse industry with a diverse sub-strategies, a lot of diverse sub-strategies underlying the industry. Um, so you have a lot to choose from and uh, where you place it in the portfolio is going to be important. So if you're talking about, um, you know, more corporate based lending, like uh, direct lending or mezzanine debt strategies, you may want to put that in a place where you might have, you know, corporate fixed income, maybe even moving into high yield, uh, depending on the credit quality um, that the manager is pursuing. And so that that replaces that income component to your portfolio, hopefully a higher income with a lot of these strategies, but the risk profile might be similar within, within the portfolio. If you're talking more total return or you're willing to take on a little bit more risk, then you might wanna consider things like distressed debt or venture debt, depending on the cycle, because those will give you an opportunity to maybe source some even from equity, or maybe you're really aggressive high yield components of your fixed income portfolio. We are playing a little bit more off in the overall portfolio. So it's kind of parsing out those sub strategies and then placing them uh, within the portfolio um, and sourcing them from the more appropriate pieces. Uh, maybe the last thing I'll say, and, and I don't know how far you've gotten uh, in the course, but you know, in the asset-based lending specialty finance section, there are some um, 
you know, strategies that are there that are kind of esoteric and, and move in a different direction than broader credit. Um, so if you're talking about insurance link securities or litigation finance or, um, you know, credit card loans or structured credit, those might move in, in a slightly different direction. And so you might want to think about, um, does this actually diversify both my um, credit portfolio and my equity portfolio? And then you're not really sourcing from one or the other or using it as a replacement necessarily. You're thinking more about the diversification opportunity uh, that it pursues. So it really depends kind of on that underlying uh, strategy. But maybe to summarize, start with the client and what they're trying to accomplish go into the vehicles and the universe that's available to you, and then think about the role that it's actually playing in the portfolio and use that, you know, if you're sourcing from an existing portfolio, use that as your guidepost for where these different strategies go. Yes, we don't have time to, to go further into that, but I think the audience would have listened to, you know, the wide variety of choices, the importance of looking at it strategically and navigating this asset class, you know, with real knowledge which is not a given. And that brings me to alternatives more globally. But what I hear just now is that this is not easy. And therefore, how can the industry navigate that? Yeah, I know we were talking a little bit beforehand just about democratization 1.0. And I, I'd argue that we're in 2.0 or even 3.0, depending on where you think we sit in, in the life cycle. 1.0 is really taking hedge funds and the hedge fund wrapper, um, you know, grew pretty substantially in assets. We tried to take that strategy and then put it into more regulated fund structures, which, you know, in most cases requires you to strip out some of the illiquidity, some of the leverage, um, and depending on the strategy uh, that the hedge fund's pursuing, you know, shorting might look a little bit different or the derivatives being used might look a little bit different. So. Um, it works for some strategies. It didn't work for others. And I think as an industry, uh, we really tried to focus on the product itself and uh, really tap the benefits of the product and not necessarily what the client was trying to accomplish in the portfolio. As we think about democratization 2.0, um, I think we have an opportunity, especially in private markets, to think more about and start with what the client's trying to accomplish and then work our way backwards. Does the client really need this? Does it actually work uh, for helping the client achieve these different objectives um, and so on? And thinking through things like liquidity and um, you know, not trying to, to be all things to all people. So my hope is, and where Kaya is really focused as a professional association, look, we don't have any funds that we're trying to sell. There's no product uh, on our shelf. Our mission is solely focused on raising the standards of professionalism and uh, advocating for the client. And then hopefully all of the other stuff, the product structure, what's available to them kind of falls from that, uh, that really important starting point. Yeah. And with this democratization, again, there's a kind of an educational gap. And I know you've got a podcast, the educational alpha, because, well, there's so much more to learn, understand, comprehend. And, and that's what I like about finance. It's also never ending, right? I mean, I, absolutely. I mean, we're very much focused on education. That's our, our calling card um, as an association. So education makes the investor more informed before going in. So that's our mission. I mean, we're trying to raise standards for the industry, but at the end of the day, we're providing educational programs, whether it's our CHI designation or the Unify platform and where you fit within that ecosystem 
is up to you, but we're trying to meet the industry where they're at in terms of where they need education. And that should be your starting point before even moving into a decision of, well, should I allocate to this strategy versus that strategy? You can't make that decision unless you're well-informed uh, before even having that conversation. Yeah, it's also very much what I have in mind with this podcast, etc. at a different level, a different audience. But we're at this stage where the opportunity is expanding faster than the rest can follow. That's where education is needed. Eventually, maybe it's all going to be regulated. I'm talking about long term. And therefore, when it's so regulated, it's less about your individual education and knowledge. But we're not there, right? We're, we're far from it. And yeah, and I think regulation plays an important role. And there's a balance between, you know, overstepping versus... Um, not stepping in enough. And, you know, I think having a sober view of that is, is important. Um, but even if regulation does come into things, I mean, a lot of these liquid alternatives in the 40 Act or the USITS uh, mutual fund space um, are regulated and people still need to understand them. When you look at, and Morningstar does a really, really good job of this investor returns gap survey that they put out um, on an annual basis. And you look at uh, what does the fund earn versus what does the individual investor earn? And is, what's the difference between those different returns? And basically looking at do investors actually stick with the strategy or do they sell out at the wrong times um, and so on. Alternatives, the kind of the broader category, which you know we can get into whether or not that's an appropriate umbrella, um, has one of the widest gaps in terms of the investor experience versus what the fund is experiencing. And I think a lot of that comes down to understanding how these strategies work. These are all regulated wrappers, um, but it's a, it's a really a story of, do you understand what you're getting yourself into? And can you stick with that strategy over the long term so that it actually delivers the, the experience that your client ultimately wants and needs? And who is responsible for bridging this gap or, or let's say linking the opportunity with the ultimate investors is advisors, right? One of your articles talks about a renewed importance of professionalism or a new role of professionalism. Can you remind us of that? Yeah, so we, we released a paper, um, and this is probably six months ago, called the Renewed Professionalism, which really just takes a step back. Given that we're a professional association, professional body, in addition to the education, we're constantly advocating for professionalizing this industry and putting the client first thinking through what the client is trying to accomplish. And again, stepping back from that, the secondary considerations are the products and the asset allocation decisions and the portfolio construction. But this paper um, really focused on, you know, what are some tools and some applications that we can think through to better professionalize this industry and help investment professionals think through, um, you know, acting with the highest ethical standards. Yes, yes. So we're bringing the ethical thing, which is a topic for another conversation, but it's also one that we've discussed quite in depth with Bill Kelly. It loops in perfectly. And I think that was wonderful. Thank you so much. We will, of course, put the links to the Unify program and the Kaya. Is there anything else that uh, you'd like to add? No, I, uh, thanks for having me on. It's, uh, it's been a fun discussion. No, thank you so much. And, you know, we really look forward to... Um, what's coming next and how Parkai is involving in particular this Unify initiative. It's very exciting, very timely. It's exactly what we need. So thank you for that. And like I said, I'm almost done. I'm 60% into my private debt course, which I enjoy very much. So I'll let you know how it goes if I pass. Yes, perfect. Well, thanks so much, George. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Investorama, your guide to the future of investing without the hype. 
please subscribe to the podcast and rate it on your favorite podcast app.